do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12:2. This is Resistance and Reformation on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Edinburgh, the historic capital of proud Scotland and one of the most beautiful cities anywhere in the world, with its famous castle, medieval old town, and stunning panoramic views, is surrounded by a beautiful coastline and magnificent countryside. With a wide choice of places to visit, castles, palaces, historic neighborhoods and villages, museums and galleries, the city has long been a favorite destination of travelers the world over. The long walk down the Royal Mile punctuated by famous churches, an array of literary associations, a stunning selection of rustic handcraft shops, a bevy of antiquarian bookstores, irresistible pubs and taverns, and a palace on either end is the backbone of both a remarkable city and a remarkable national legacy that reaches back beyond the heroic days of Wallace and Bruce and forward to the rich epic of Burns, Scott, and Chalmers. In 1773, Samuel Johnson visited the city. He was the most dominant figure of the 18th century literary world. His renown was due in part because of his moral essays, poetry, and prayers, in part because of his remarkable dictionary of the English language, and in part because of his novel, Rasselas. But he probably would have never attained the stature that places him in the same rank as Shakespeare and Milton were it not for his trip to Scotland with his friend and biographer, James Boswell. Born in Lichfield in 1709, the son of a failed bookseller, Johnson struggled throughout early life against the ravages of poverty. Though he demonstrated a precocious mind and a prodigious literary talent, he was unable to complete his education at Oxford and instead began his lifelong labors as a hack freelance writer in London for a series of newspapers, magazines, and book publishers. He quickly became prolific and adept at virtually every genre, from criticism and poetry to biography and theater. Though his work was recognized as brilliant, he was never quite able to climb out of the miry privation that seemed to perpetually bog him down. When he was nearly 50, he was commissioned to produce a dictionary, and over the course of the next seven years, he single-handedly took on the task of comprehensively documenting English usage, which then uh, he completed and, as a result, set the standard for etymology ever afterward. The work was, indeed, stunning. 
each word in the dictionary was not only carefully defined, but illustrated with examples from classic or poetic literature. The dictionary earned Dr. Johnson a royal allowance, which enabled him to pay off the bill collectors and to live with a modicum of ease for the rest of his life. And it was during this season of his life that he first met James Boswell, a Scottish 'er ne'er-do-well and a spendthrift who had squandered his father's considerable estate on the pleasures of the flesh. Johnson was pious, thoughtful, bookish, and a venerable elder statesman. Boswell was impetuous, ingratiating, bombastic, and an irreverent young Turk. But amazingly, the two men struck up a fast friendship. Over the course of the next several years, the unlikely pair carried on a conversation that, when documented in Boswell's biographies and journals, would enchant the world. Boswell had long desired to show off his homeland, and given Dr. Johnson's interest in the lost cause of the Jacobites, of Body Prince Charlie, and of the tragedy of Culloden, the invitation to come to Scotland was entertained with great interest and gratitude, but By 1773, Johnson was very nearly incapacitated with gout, corpulence, and arthritis. Even though he was eloquent of speech and elegant of mind, he was hardly a fit candidate for the difficult task of journeying overland any distance. Nevertheless, he determined to go. Boswell had arranged for Dr. Johnson to be feted and entertained throughout his stay in the city of Edinburgh, and the narrative of his visit is essentially a chronology of conversations, parties, and social occasions. There was much eating, drinking, discussing, debating, haranguing, criticizing, joshing, and kidding. Over the course of the next several days, they spent those days mostly in the city, but it is evident that what occupied Johnson, even more than all of the conversations, the meals, and the parties, as much as he apparently enjoyed those, was the history of the land. And Edinburgh was a city steeped in history. He reveled in the stories of William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. He gloried in the tales of Flora MacDonald and Rob Roy. He marveled at the tenacity of the Covenanters and the duplicity of the Campbells. He listened to the tales of Loch Ness, of Glencoe, and of Iona. He retraced the steps of John Knox along the high street from Giles Kirk to Holyrood, and he stood transfixed in the Greyfriars churchyard, where the signing of the National Covenant had toppled a king and forged a nation. He believed that modern social and political agendas, which are more often than not ferociously alien to the founding principles of Western Christendom, generally demanded a radical and revisionist perspective of history. 
they manipulated the past in an effort to similarly manipulate the future. So as an antidote to that kind of dastardly divine despotism, he advocated a very straightforward back-to-basics and shirt-sleeves approach to academic and cultural integrity. Strip away the layers of historical waffling and garbling that had begun to veil or even bury the truth. Indeed, he believed that nearly all the historical work worth doing at that time in the English language was the work of shoveling off heaps of rubbish inherited from the immediate past. Thus, his trip to Edinburgh proved to be a kind of sociological and cultural version of an archaeological expedition. And when his observations, witticisms, epigrams, quips, and aphorisms were ultimately recorded in Boswell's journal and biography, his vision of history not only helped to awaken a new Scottish nationalism among the next generation of Scottish writers, such as Robert Burns and Walter Scott, but also provoked a new approach to the academic discipline of moral philosophy, as practiced by a new generation of Scottish thinkers, such as Thomas Chalmers and Adam Smith. Familiarity breeds contempt, though familiar things are all the more remarkable for their comfortable accessibility. So it was that certain aspects of Edinburgh's story had become so familiar to many Scots that they were apt to miss their original impact and import. Thus, Dr. Johnson's inquiries aimed at the familiar as much as at the unfamiliar in the hope of exchanging contempt for cognizance. In that, he was successful. Indulging the passions of the good doctor in his declining years was therefore uh, more than a matter of social kindness. It was a significant contribution to the shaping of the destiny of the land in accord with God's good providence. And that was no mean feat. Indeed, that was both resistance and reformation. I'm George Grant on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. For more information and for resources, go to georgegrant.net.